Roxy, remember when Father James Martin told us in season one that he wanted to get soup dumplings with us? We're still waiting for your call, Father Jim. We're ready. We are. And when you call, we know exactly where we should go. Namwa Tea Parlor in the heart of Chinatown. <gasps> I took my parents there when they visited in February. Aww. The perfect season for soup dumplings. Yes. It was their first soup dumpling experience. New York is known as a foodie paradise, and I will take soup dumplings over a slice of greasy pizza any day. Mm, controversial. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women seeking to understand our neighbors in New York, all eight million of them. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, It was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Hi. This is Ibu Patel. 20 years ago, I founded an organization called Interfaith Youth Corps, dedicated to working with young people from different religious and spiritual backgrounds to build a country that is welcoming to all. This year, we are changing our name to Interfaith America with an expanded mission and vision, but with the same goal of making religion a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. You can learn how in my book, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy, and by visiting www.interfaithamerica.org. Looking forward to working alongside you as we build Interfaith America together. Of course, the reason New York is a foodie paradise is because of how incredibly diverse the city is. New York is definitely the most diverse place we've ever lived and eaten. I do think in a lot of ways people's first experience to New York's diversity of cultures is through food. It's particularly rich with Asian and Asian fusion restaurants. Do you have a favorite? Um, well, when I lived in East Village, I lived literally right around the corner from Momofuku and the original one, I think. And it was part hype for sure, but there was always a line going around the corner and it was delicious and fun to live there. And then there was also, which... RIP New York Mm -hmm. always takes away our favorite restaurants. There was this amazing Thai place on third Avenue that I was a friend of a friend of the owner. And she was like a a second generation from Thailand and was was doing some really cool things with food, including the most amazing burger, which you would never think to get at a Thai place, but it was amazing. Mm. So good. And she served it with these um, mango fries. Ooh, like deep fried mangoes. Listeners can't see this, but I'm salivating over my laptop right now. (laughs) I do love that food is such a cultural influence that way. Sharing food is about hospitality and invitation, which we are going to hear more about in a few weeks, by the way. That's true. Tune in to our episode in two weeks. I will say that New York City is really the first time I've lived among so many 
Asian American neighbors. And that's been both educational and eye-opening in a lot of ways. And I think in particular, realizing how how different these different cultures are and how easy it is to not realize that until you live in a place like New York. We just celebrated Asian American and Pacific Islander Month, which is a good and important type of celebration. But it does tend to reinforce this idea that Asian Americans are a monolith in the United States and living in New York, you realize how untrue that is, that there are distinct cultures, stories, traditions, ways that different communities have come to the United States and their experiences mm-hmm. here in the city are distinct from one another, even though there are also commonalities. Last year, during a protest that I was covering here, I was talking to a woman who was running for Congress, and she was telling me when I was interviewing her, she was just talking about how misunderstood that is, you know, and how there are so many different Asian American experiences of New York that there's, you know, she was talking about the, of course, like the country of origin experiences, but you also have like first generation all the way to like fourth, sixth generation Um, You Mm -hmm. have people living like within their communities in Chinatown or, you know, more scattered. You have this variety of socioeconomic experience from people in the food industry to one area that's been explored a lot, um, reported on a lot as like manicures and spas, which are can often be really problematic. And Mm -hmm. people don't always treat people who are working there with very much humanity. And then mm-hmm. you've got like people working at Fortune 500 companies and doctors and, you know, it's a it's an incredibly diverse experience and often sort of either gets erased or kind of forgotten or like lumped together into one common experience. It's unfortunate that one of the reasons I feel like I've started to learn about Asian American communities in New York is because of tragedy and hatred in the city. Yeah. At the end of 2021, the New York Police Department reported a 361% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes since the year before, which is crazy. As women, maybe mm-hmm. especially single women in New York, we think about our safety. I, you know, I, I generally feel safe mm-hmm. wherever I am in the city, but coming home late at night or... Being on a subway car with one other person, you do think, like, I need to get home. (laughs) Yeah. But just recognizing that women of color, including Asian American women in the city, are especially vulnerable because of Mm -hmm. this rise in anti-Asian sentiment. One story that really chilled me this winter was the murder of Christina Yuna Lee, who was Mm -hmm. a 35-year-old woman living in Chinatown. And one night, a man followed her inside of her apartment building and followed her upstairs and stabbed her to death. And it's unclear whether her death was racially motivated, like if the person was targeting her because she was Asian American. But it certainly struck fear in the city, in many Asian American communities. Like it seemed like connected to this broader rise of anti-Asian hate crimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Recently, someone I know at church during Sunday school was talking about that exactly. Like she's basically said that she she won't go home alone anymore at night. Like she always tries to have a companion or a buddy. And she said Mm -hmm. people from work have been really great about if she needs to go home later at night, someone will ride with her on the subway or Mm. call her an Uber and help pay for it. And that was great to hear. But it was 
like I can feel afraid in the city, but oftentimes I feel like that fear is really just me getting nervous. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily like I'm probably not necessarily in peril, but I think for her, like that fear was incredibly real Mm -hmm. and warranted. Mm -hmm. Like we might feel vulnerable as women, but we are not being targeted as well because of a racial animus. Yeah. Or just hypersensitivity because of our moms being afraid for us. (laughs) I can't let Karen know what I do and where I go. She'd be freaked out. Just kidding, mom. But there's undoubtedly a link between those hate crimes and racist attitudes that exist around about Asian Americans who are often labeled as outsiders and honestly as as a threat in particular in the COVID era. Right. It wasn't that long ago that the guy who was our former president called it China virus, which was a way of racializing the spread of COVID in the United States and played into his Mm anti-immigrant attitudes, you know, and connecting a virus with a group of people is kind of the definition of racism. Right. As we discussed with Jamar Tisby a few weeks ago, these ideas, these words have consequences, real life consequences. And unfortunately, sometimes it's white Christians who have helped spread some of the most damaging ideas about our brothers and sisters of color. I'm thinking about the Atlanta shootings that occurred Mm -hmm. in March of 2021. A young white man who identified as a Christian went to three different spas in the Atlanta area and specifically targeted Asian women who were working there. And Mm -hmm. after this horrific event, he said that he targeted them because he claimed to be struggling with sexual addiction or temptation and like Mm -hmm. eliminating these women was his way of coping with that. And you just see how attitudes about Asian American women as being exoticized and kind of inherently sexual and then Mm -hmm. objectified and how that connects then to these white Christian ideals around purity and purity culture Mm -hmm. It was as if this man saw women as problems in and of themselves. And then it also had this racial overlay. Mm -hmm. I think that that incident, um, that was actually the the Atlanta shooting was when I went to the protest um, that Mm. I was talking about. It was right after that. Um, And it was, you know, a a protest um, really around anti-Asian violence um, and hate crimes. And it was the first time I'd really recognized and learned about what some of those stereotypes are that Asian Americans are living with in some ways. Like one of the, one of the things that they talked about is how, how, how often their cultures get sort of erased. And I think that that, and their experiences, um, their American experiences. Um, and I think that that was true. I mean, I, for me anyway, like those were just not things that I had heard, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that was the first time I'd really heard about sort of the the model minority myth and this idea that Asian Americans kind of they come to America and they are you know they they play by the rules and Mm -hmm. succeed according to the rules Mm -hmm. and you know can often be sort of held up as this like standard of successful immigration and Mm -hmm. really what that means is like successful assimilation. I think that was really startling to me. Um, I have a good friend who 
is half Filipino and had not really talked to her very much about mm. her experience as someone whose mother was an immigrant from the Philippines and really like talked to her about what that was like or what it's like to be an Asian American woman in America. And I, we talked about it later. And, you know, I think I just, it, it just had not, in many ways, had not occurred to me in mm-hmm. the ways that, like, and I don't understand why. Like, I think, you know, again, this was sort of one of those things that I contemplated later, like after some of that happened last year of like, man, why was this like not a part of our friendship or a part of what we mm. talked about and realizing that for her, ways that that might have made her feel invisible in our friendship or not as known or that like she talked about that with other people like Mm -hmm. other you know other Asian Americans not with me you know and I think Mm -hmm. that was that was that was tough to 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 realize that about about myself and um I think it's better now but I should ask her again we're all on a journey Roxy (laughs) I know Today's guest is Nikki Toyama Sito, Executive Director of Christians for Social Action. Of all the genders that God could have chosen, he chose to make me a woman. And of all of the races and ethnicities he could have chosen, that he chose to make me Japanese-American. Those are not obstacles to be overcome, but rather they were like God's best gift. Our conversation with Nikki is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. And as we dream and scheme about season four, tell us who we should talk to and what we should talk about. Like, if you could sit down and chat with us about anything over a martini, because that's what sounds good right now, what would it be? Also, if you are not imbibing, imagine iced tea. Or soup dumplings. Yes. Also, just as important, who should replace hot priest? Sadly, our favorite New York priest no longer lives in New York and also recently got engaged. Congrats, Ben. Mazel tov. Send us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Roxy, who was your first celebrity sighting in New York City? Um, I think it was Steve Carell. <gasps> that was early on anyway. Oh, man. At the airport, we were getting on the same flight. That's a good one. I always try not to react because I, I just try to be be cool. Yes, I have heard not to react. Although there are some celebrities that if I saw, I would have a hard time not reacting in some way. There's like this kind of a thrill of excitement, like seeing them in the flesh. It's true. Why do you think that is? I have theories that I flesh <laughs> out in my upcoming book. Tell us where we can get said book and how our listeners can read it. Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church will be out August 16th. You can pre-order at the Big Bad Book website or at my website, CaitlinBeatty.com. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. 
The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Nikki Toyama Sito, the Executive Director of Christians for Social Action. I first got to know Nikki on a Ruby Woo pilgrimage in 2017, where she led a group of about 40 women to a memorial that I was not even aware of in Washington, D.C., to help us understand how discrimination against Asian Americans has affected her own family and her family story. Thank you so much for being with us, Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Thank you so much for inviting me on. So you are someone who really seems to have a strong sense of leadership, and you've led in many spaces. And I wanted to ask what it looks like for you to lead authentically and from a place of security in yourself and in your capacity and call to lead as an Asian American woman. Caitlin, talking about leadership is like one of my favorite things. <laughs> I don't get to talk about it that much. So thanks for the question. Okay. I used to view my gender and my race as sort of an obstacle to effective mm-hmm. leadership. And so that was a big part of my journey. I think part of it was, you know, it's just the the kinds of leaders that were held up as examples. You know, I would look at them and their personality and I look at like myself. And I'd sort of see this huge gap. But I think one of the things that helped me to sort of find my voice or find my place is to recognize that of all the genders that God could have chosen, he chose to make me a woman. And of all of the races and ethnicities he could have chosen, that he chose to make me Japanese-American. And that um, those are not obstacles to be overcome in order to be a better leader, but rather they were like God's best gift. And what is it that I can bring from that wellspring? that I had only looked at as a liability, what is it that I can actually draw from that that makes me a more effective leader in the different places where I am? So I think that was one of the um, the main ahas that really helped uh, all those, um, uh, the energy sort of settle. And it helped me to kind of find my stride as a leader. So recognizing you didn't have to look like Steve Jobs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be an effective leader. And that's right. I think that's, that's good news for a lot of us. <laughs> for and, and maybe for the world. <laughs> yeah. That, that we all don't look like Steve Jobs. Yeah. I mean, I yes. think particularly it was this whole like, oh, a leader is charismatic and vision setting and calls people to a thing. I enter a room and I have to like fight for a couple of feet of space and not get elbowed out and stepped mm-hmm. on. Um, but, but recognizing like, oh, but the ways that I can navigate in the world unseen for just a little while it helps me get to interesting places and ask questions that people don't find as threatening. So I think it was was kind of that, how do you Mm. use this momentum that might be um, something that might cause invisibility or feel like a liability for leadership? How do you take that and actually find the opportunity that it presents? So um, I think one of the things, like an example for me is I was an engineer and um, I was helping a tech company take something over to Japan. And... uh, uh, my vice president of engineering was with me as well. And he would ask all of these tech questions and they just shut down. Uh, I mm. think because they were very concerned that he was going to steal uh, information. But I just sort of walked alongside folks. And I would ask the same questions. I don't think they saw me as an engineer. And as a result, I got mm. all the tech spec information that we needed. It wasn't deceptive. But I think that was a way that like um, I-, I began to realize how I show up in the world creates as some other opportunities, even though I was so aware of how many obstacles it created. Besides sort of feeling like maybe invisible or having to feel like you're fighting for space, what are some, 
I don't know, some other common barriers or scripts that you feel like Asian American women in particular face when they are trying to speak up or lead in these kinds of ways? Yeah, I think there's something of a trope around demure Asian women. And so if they show up funny or if they show up loud and brassy or if they're Uh activists and protesters – that can be unsettling for folks. So I, I think that's one particular thing. I think there's a way that Asian women were raised to think about the needs of other people around them. And so mm-hmm. this idea of ambition or dreams or setting out a vision and going after it is not necessarily like encouraged. Honestly, the biggest barrier for me is that people don't recognize that I'm the leader. And mm-hmm. if I show up at a conference and I'm speaking... My experience of the conference before I get up and speak is entirely different than my experience afterwards. And I know that that's oh, not... that's interesting. It's not entirely uncommon. They look at you and register. She's not going to be speaking and leading from the stage. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think that's something that feels really different. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the ways that invisibility does show up is um, there are some folks that I have met over and over and over again, mm-hmm. but I don't think they think of like, ooh... Asian woman leader in the Christian space, strategic person to remember, you know? So that's, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the ways that um, the invisibility kind of shows up. I've, I've had that happen a couple of times where I was like, I know I've met you more than once and you can't remember I who I am. And that's a very frustrating <laughs> feeling. Because you, you have the cards you could play, right, Roxy? Like, you'd be like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm bringing with me. <laughs> I would feel angry. Do you feel angry? <laughs> and if so, how do you how do you process that? It makes me angry and it makes me sad. And I think I thought it would fade mm. more than it has. I don't know if I have a great answer uh, for how it is that I process it, but I think one of the most helpful things is to notice that that is somebody else's blind spot, you know, mm. and it's someone else's lack of imagination. The problem is. I wish that the consequences of that would only stay with them as well. Right. I I wish I could be like, oh, you know, who cares? That's what my mom always says. Who cares? Who cares? Like that was her mantra for – she wasn't the most compassionate person. (laughs) 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 Who cares about that? Go on. (laughs) Um, And uh, so sometimes I jokingly tell myself that. But the the problem is that I do care. And I think Mm -hmm. what makes me a little sad and what actually spurs me to some action, there are other – women, there are other women of color's voices, and their contribution is totally just not getting seen or there isn't a spacious place for that because people who with power lack imagination. So that, I mean, that's like the main thing I'm trying to do is stir the imagination. Mm. What is it that leaders look like that might be different? And the things that make them feel disqualified are actually the things that make them essential, you know, for this leadership moment. I used to work in the area of like, um, human trafficking and that sort of a thing. And it was uh, the survivors and some of what they have gone through that actually, Mm -hmm. you know, in other places to be, oh, you're disqualified uh, from leadership. But actually there was a way that specifically in justice places, they needed to lead out because there's things that they understood that folks who never went through that kind of trauma could have no, you know, had no imagination for. So what does that mean for us to make hospitable space for unusual forms of leadership. I think we all win when when that's true, you know. There's been a lot of reports of women who have experienced anti-Asian violence. We yes. know last year the killing of 
the women at the three spas in the Atlanta right. area. Um, yes. And then also I know several friends here yes. who, you know, they don't want to go on subways by themselves. They don't want to be out late at night. I, I think it's a scary time in a lot of ways. Yes. So from your perspective, why, like what's going on? Why do you think we're seeing this rise in that kind of violence? I don't know how much of it is a rise in the kind mm. of violence as it is an awareness of the kind of violence. One of the things that is feeding it is when you have these perceptions and these stereotypes of who it is that Asian women are, how strong or not strong they are, all of those things I feel like paint targets on Asian women's backs. So kind of um, the unfettered exotic eroticism of Asian women. Right. So, th so I think those are the things where these stereotypes become really, really dangerous. I am more nervous to mm. be in New York City than I've ever been uh, because of the high profile attacks. As president of Christians for Social Action, it seems in the work that you do, like this is all connected. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear from you just how you see those connections between these sort of various social ills that you all are taking on at Christians for Social Action. Yeah, absolutely. We have like this wide portfolio of things we care about, mm -hmm. about the environment, about income inequality, about racial justice and the promotion of women, um, about immigrants and refugees. And I think mm -hmm. the thing is it's less about the issues that we care about, but more about the way we are trying to help Christians show up in the world. So that's like mm. the connection point. We're trying to help Christians take seriously what does it mean to follow Jesus in all areas of their life, to, to follow Jesus in personal ways, but also in ways that engage with systems and structures in society. And so we look at these different issues as like a practical outworking of how some of that looks like. Um, the main thing we want people to do is to recognize that following Jesus is like great. It makes us a better person and more resilient and all that kind of stuff. But following Jesus also means it's an invitation to participate in some of the great ways that God is trying to work his grace into the places of the greatest sorrow and, and mm -hmm. brokenness in our world. And um, so I think that's, that's where there's a commonness, even though the issues themselves feel like, oh my goodness, like you care about right-handed people and left-handed people. Like, you know, like, <laughs> it can be like the policies go everywhere. But the main thing is, we're really trying to help people have a fuller sense of what it means to follow Jesus, not just like a Sunday faith, um, mm -hmm. but a faith that is relevant and engages mm -hmm. with more areas of their life. So I think we met in person for the first time, Nikki, on the Ruby Woo pilgrimage That's back right. in yes. 2017. During that trip, during the D.C. portion of that pilgrimage, you talked about the fact that your family was part yes. of the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Right. That history, if we learned about it in high school, it was cursory. Uh -huh. yes. <laughs> it was yeah. maybe one brief mention in the whole yes. World War II story. Uh, yes, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Can you share a bit of that story and how that affected your family and your identity? Absolutely. Caitlin, I think I took you all to one of my favorite places in Washington, D.C., which is the Japanese American Internment Memorial, which is just mm -hmm. outside of the train station. Um, so, yeah, my family was um, incarcerated in the Jerome, Arkansas camp. And um, by all intents and purposes, um, you know, they were rounded up in their homes in Los Angeles and taken to, um, if you go up the 101 in California, which is a, a major freeway, um, there are these racing tracks 
people were taken to those animal stalls uh, to be mm. processed and then put on buses and then brought into the different camps. It, it's, it is a mass incarceration of men, women, and children without any due process. Folks left everything, all of their uh, heirlooms and treasures and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes when I see um, Japanese uh, antiques of a certain time period in the house mm -hmm. of a non-Japanese person, it just makes me wonder like, oh, gee, what is the journey mm. of that? Wow. You know, was that someone's treasured yeah. sword that they actually had to sell fast because weapons, you know, were another way to get, you know, immediately taken to a worse camp. But my church, Lakeside Japanese Church of Chicago, was actually born in one of those camps. And a bunch of people were not allowed to return to California. And so um, the folks uh, at my church went to Chicago and they sort of started a new life. There's a, a an article that Eleanor Roosevelt wrote in Collier's Magazine in support of the internment camps. Mm. And the lead picture of that is actually a picture of my family. Oh. And it is my grandfather who's dressed in an army, a U.S. Army sergeant's uniform because he was in the army. And then his three brothers who are in the camps. And then my great-grandmother and great-grandfather sitting right before, just before they were forcibly deported back to Japan. So in that one picture is sort of these three different pictures uh, in my one family, a, a snapshot of three different experiences that Japanese Americans had during the war. Mm -hmm. So I never found out any of this stuff because the Japanese way of dealing with something as terrible as a... As a as the accusation of disloyalty is to bury that shame and to be silent mm. and just to like to become as American as we possibly could. So my grand my my parents' names are Joanne and Ronald. And there's a whole generation of Japanese Americans who all have these like uber sort of outdated <laughs> American names. <laughs> mm. But that was just kind of the response to the trauma. Um so I think these but different folks we're, we've been trying to grasp on and recognize the different ways that God showed up. And I think it's informed how I've wanted to show up as a Christian. You know, with different justice issues, I don't want future generations to look back in the way that I look back and go, where was the church? Mm -hmm. I feel very fueled by that memory and my family's lived experience to be like, oh, no, no, no. I want to show up so that we can say, no, no, no. The church saw this. The church witnessed. This. The church spoke up. Has the United States done anything to repair that kind of inflictment of generational trauma and pain and stripping away for yes. Japanese Americans? Yeah, they did. Actually, there was a law that was passed that gave reparations for the Japanese American who were displaced, Some, you know, something on the order of like mm -hmm. $10,000. Folks lost farms in California. People's lives were interrupted and destroyed. So $10,000 is just a symbolic amount. But I will say just the act of this, this payment, this reparations, was such a profound um, statement of saying, hey, we were wrong and we're trying to make, make that right. It's part of the reason that I feel very passionate about advocating for reparations for both First Nations as well as African Americans is mm -hmm. it's, it pauses and helps you. It, it's sort of saying like, hey we wronged you and at least put some value instead of sort of saying like, hey, hey, sorry, gotta go, you know, mm -hmm. like, let's move on kind of a thing. So um, mm -hmm. I think that was a pretty powerful thing. The funny thing is, there's still a a court case at the Supreme Court called Fred Korematsu versus I, the United States, I believe. 
And so the Supreme Court has still held up the incarceration of Japanese Americans. I was just talking last week with a, a law professor at WashU about that. I said, everyone agrees that that was the wrong decision. Like, what does that ever come off the books? And he was just sort of saying, hmm. and you know, like, there's sideways ways that that might come off the books and, and give the court a chance to correct it. But but the reparations bill was um, huge, and I think helpful for the for the country. Um, you know, I think we're we're in the middle of. AAPI month, you know, what are some of the gaps in understanding that Americans have about the Asian American experience? What are some ways that you want to raise awareness or you want people to understand your experiences more? One of the things I'd say is that Asian American, uh, Asian American Pacific Islander, like that's a huge umbrella yeah. and a simple recognition of, oh, these are the different strings that follow in that, that there is a difference between among American and a Korean American or someone who's South Asian. You know, so I think recognizing the diversity in that and anything that breaks this model minority myth. This mm -hmm. myth that, oh, Asian, Amer Asian Americans, they come into the country, they work hard, and then they succeed. Because that partially what that does is that wipes out the experience of, of half the Asian American community or more. Um, mm -hmm. So I think uh, the first thing I'd say is to ask the question of, like, where are the different places where Asian Americans are showing up in my community, in the places where I already am, the kinds of uh, culture that I consume or, or you know, the things that I'm interested in. So just to have eyes for the distinctives that Asian Americans bring, I'd say that's one thing that I would hope would be true. Um, the other thing that I hope would be true is that folks would just know like maybe one living and then maybe one dead Asian American person um, and, and the story and the contribution that they made you know, to the US. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's um, just knowing people's stories I think can be pretty powerful. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of my favorite ones is Jeremy Lin, a uh, basketball player. I, I like mm -hmm. one of the tagline is, is something about, um, you know, it's, it's nice to see a kid from Harvard succeed. He's a basketball player from Harvard <laughs> or whatever. But I, I think to following his story, particularly for folks from the Christian community, it's a pretty compelling story of him trying to live out his faith uh, in mm -hmm. a place and in a way that reflects God's character. But also the ways that because he didn't look like what people thought basketball players should look like. People didn't mm -hmm. recognize his contributions in the moment. So, um, How familiar are you with New York? A little bit. I mean, I love New York. How beautiful is New York on a perfect like 70 degree it day? Is. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think New York has maybe a unique, it's a uniquely diverse city and has like, oh, a yes. uniquely large Asian American population. Yes. That's yeah. pretty diverse in terms of, you know, country and socioeconomic status and job and all of that. Yeah. So I was up, I, I did the whole, you know, go up for a day, intentionally gave myself a couple of hours so that I could walk around New York City, just because I love the energy of the city and have to stop in at some of my favorite bakeries and stuff like that. But I found one of the things that is to me so interesting about New York is it has a pocket of a lot of folks from Japan. So that's really different for me than the Japanese-American community that I mostly get access mm. to in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it's the sushi, it's the ramen, but it's also the Muji store, which is the, the number one store I go when I go to Tokyo. Like, that's the store I want to go to. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that I love how in New York City, 
It's such a diverse city, but it also is able to help people hold onto, I'm going to call it the first version of their culture. Mm. I don't know mm. if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. so, so I go to New York and I experience Japanese culture and mm. I love that. And then I go to LA and I experience Japanese American culture. I also okay. love that too, but it's pretty different. It's a little more Hello Kitty and a little bit more like sweets <laughs> than it is. So anyways, I, I think that's one of the things I've sort of appreciated about New York City is, you know, Asian American culture has like, you know, this is the first generation. And then there's so many different generations. And you know, so there's like Chef David mm -hmm. Chang or others who are doing really interesting stuff in like the food mm -hmm. of a second generation or third generation. So, mm -hmm. but I feel like when, that's one of the things I appreciate about New York is its ability to keep all of these different generations going, if that makes sense, versus a lot yeah, of cities, you know, right? The immigrants come in and then the culture evolves with the city itself. So that's one of the things that I really like is sort of sneaking around and finding these pockets. Um, I love going to, you know, old Chinatown, you know, you'll have a million dollar apartment next to like this granny who I know has recycled that brown bag a hundred thousand times. <laughs> you know, like I yep. so there's a way that the city has the ability to kind of hold a moment mm. in time and keep it there even for such a fast city. You guys are lucky that you get to live there. I'm jealous. <laughs> it's true. I feel lucky to live here too. And I also feel challenged regularly when people come to visit because you get in your own ruts when you live here, you know, and you mm -hmm. forget that it's a city for a lot of exploring. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I love about living here, it feels like you'll never get to the end of New York City. Be like, yes. I've seen everything. Uh -huh. There is, uh -huh. there is always something, a neighborhood, a museum, a new uh -huh. <laughs> exhibit or whatever. There's always something new to explore. I just love that it, like, you'll never get to see all of it. You know, that's yeah, that's so fantastic. I I always buy um, the public library and all those tables out there, and on a beautiful mm -hmm. day, I was like. This doesn't seem like an exotic thing to find. And it's the most lovely thing I've like mm -hmm. seen in a week. Do you know what I mean? I was like, mm -hmm. boy, when the weather's nice, New York is amazing. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Summer? come in February, but. <laughs> oh, I was going to say August when like, you know, it's 90 degrees and the you can smell the garbage on the streets. <laughs> and... <laughs> well, Thank you so much for your time today, Nikki, and for sharing a part of your story as well as your family's story. That was really, really moving to and profound to hear you share that again. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for listening. For listening. Do we need to say why we're replacing Aubrey's? Or just <laughs> let the curiosity drive them mad. <laughs> R.I.P. Hot. No, we don't want to say R.I.P. <laughs> He's dead. He's dead to us.